We are still considering, as most of you will remember, the words found in Paul's epistle to the Romans in chapter 8, and I'm going to read again from verse 18 to verse 23. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him was subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now, and not only they but ourselves also which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. Now, you remember that the apostle here is dealing with the way in which Christian people should face suffering and trials and tribulations in this present world. And the essence of his teaching is this that there's only one way to do so, and that is to know the truth about the glory that is awaiting us. There is no comfort in the Scripture to people who don't believe Christian doctrine. All comfort is derived from the doctrine. And the main doctrine here, as I say, is the doctrine of this blessed hope, the glory that is yet to be revealed. And we've been trying to consider something of the character and the nature of that glory, as it will be manifested in the Lord himself, as it will be manifested and revealed in us. The creature is waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. The glory is to be revealed in us and through us and by means of us, as well as the Lord himself. And then we were seeing last Friday, that uh, even the whole creation is itself to partake in this. The creature, the creation itself, also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the liberty of the glory of the sons of God. It's groaning and travailing now, but it is going to be delivered. And we were quoting passages from the Old Testament and the New, which tell us something about the conditions which will prevail when the whole creation will in this way have been delivered from the bondage of corruption in which it now is and which leads to nothing but vanity. Well now, there remains for us to do but uh, two things. Having uh, tried in this way to describe uh, the glory and uh, something of its character and its nature. There is a question, no doubt, in the minds of many as to when this is to be. And uh, furthermore, some uh, are probably asking, to what exactly does this refer? Now, you will have seen from my exposition that uh, really that question should not arise, but it does arise in people's minds. And it arises very largely because of a popular teaching 
a teaching which has been very popular for the last hundred years or so, with regard to the millennium. And no doubt many of you have been asking and wondering, what is the relationship of all this to the millennium? Is all I've been describing a description of the millennium, or is it not? Well, now, I say that in many ways the question, uh, if my exposition uh, hitherto has been accepted, uh, should not arise. But in order to try to clarify the matter, uh, I feel it is incumbent upon me uh, just uh, to advert to this briefly in passing. Well, now, as you approach this problem, the great thing that I would remind you of again is that the description which is given here of what is going to happen to the children of God and to the whole creation is something final and permanent. What is described is the entire deliverance of the whole of creation from the bondage of corruption, not a temporary deliverance, but a final deliverance and a permanent and a complete deliverance. There is nothing temporary at all suggested in the account which is given here of this glory that is awaiting both the sons of God and the whole of the creation in consequence of the manifestation of the glory of the sons. Now that's the basic point which we've got to hold in our minds and which I think will help to clear up immediately any misunderstanding that may be in people's minds with regard to this question. So that I therefore do not hesitate to assert that what we've got in these verses has nothing whatsoever to do with any supposed millennium. For the reason that I have given is quite enough in and of itself. Those who believe in a literal, uh, physical, material millennium here upon earth uh, will, of course, all grant that uh, on their own showing that is only going to be temporary. It's only going to last a thousand years. And after that, there is going to be a kind of reversion uh, to the state of conflict and of sin and of confusion that is in existence at the present time. Everybody who believes in a, that literal millennium always says that and teaches that. But I'm pointing out that there is nothing of a temporary nature at all with regard to the glory which the Apostle is describing in these verses that are before us. Now, that's, uh, that is the most important point, of course. It seems to me to establish it once and forever that this has got nothing to do with an earthly millennium. But uh, let's go a little more deeply into this matter. It is important for us to remember that there is no reference anywhere in the Bible to a period of a thousand years except in the passage in the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation which I read to you just now. Now that is the only place in which there is any reference to a period of a thousand years. I'm not referring to 2 Peter 3, of course, because that doesn't refer to any period. All that that says is that with God, a thousand years are as one day, and one day is a thousand years. This is the passage on which people base their case for the millennium, the 20th of Revelation. But now it's very interesting to notice, I hope you did notice as we were reading it just now, that in that 20th chapter of Revelation, 
there is no reference whatsoever to the condition of creation. None at all. It doesn't tell us anything about the state of the earth or of the animals or anything else, the state of creation. That is not considered in the 20th chapter of Revelation at all. In other words, you see, again, confirming what we've already discovered from these verses, that these have got nothing whatsoever to do with a millennium. No, what we've been dealing with here refers to what is described and dealt with at the end of that 20th chapter, where the devil is finally cast into the lake of fire and death and Hades cast in after him, where evil is finally dealt with once and forever. Now, this is important to me very largely because it does cause such confusion in the minds of people. And therefore I would remind you again that this teaching about a supposed millennium is not to be found anywhere except in the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation, as you know, is a book which is full of symbols. It's full of pictures and images. It tells us that and it describes conditions in terms of beasts and it uses numbers in other places. Nobody dreams of taking the numbers in other places literally, but when they come to this 20th chapter, it's got to be a literal thousand years. Not realizing that the figure 10 is always one of completeness. And when you've got 10 multiplied by 10 and again by 10, well, it suggests a long period. But they persist in literalizing that, and that's got to be something literal, without realizing the difficulties in which they're involved. There is no reference, I say, to the condition of creation in that book at all. All it says is that for a given length of time, put in terms of symbolic figures, that uh, our Lord, not only will our Lord reign, but that those who've suffered for his name's sake will be reigning with him. Very well. Now, there is something, therefore, which it is important for us uh, to remember. But people will say, what about uh, the Old Testament? The passages you read from the 11th of Isaiah and so on last week, don't they point to the millennium? Well, they've got nothing to say about a millennium at all. But what has happened is that people, having taken the reference to a thousand years in Revelation 20 literally and having formed their theory on the basis of that and that alone, then try to say that all these others are talking about the same thing. But that, you see, is no proof at all. There is no reference at all to just a period of a thousand years in any of the other passages. It's not to be found anywhere except in Revelations 20. Now, there are so many people who have never realized that. But these are the actual facts with regard to the scriptural teaching. Let me give you another fact. Nowhere whatsoever in the whole of the Bible are believers exhorted to look forward to a coming millennium. Nowhere. You, find, you cannot find any such passage. There isn't one anywhere in the Bible. Christians are exhorted everywhere to look forward to the coming of the Lord and this glory which is to be revealed. This is the thing that in many places we are exhorted to look forward to. But there is no injunction or exhortation anywhere for us to look forward to a coming literal 
thousand years of reign of the Lord and his saints here upon the earth. It's not to be found anywhere at all. It's not even to be found in Revelations 20. All we are told is that over a given period, a long period, our Lord and the saints will be reigning in that way. But nowhere are we exalted to look forward to a literal, material, earthly millennium. It's just not in this Bible from beginning to end. Now let me go further and say this. If there is to be such a thing, surely this is the passage of all places where we'd expect to find it. Romans 8, 17 and following. The apostle is comforting these afflicted and suffering saints. Why didn't he say to them, now wait a minute, don't be uh, overcast and downcast. Don't you realize that ere long the Lord will come and he'll set up his earthly kingdom for a thousand years. And then at the end of that Satan will be let loose again and there'll be trouble. And then after that he will come again and there'll be the final judgment. But he doesn't say that. There's no reference to anything of the sort. Surely we're entitled to argue that if there is to be thus a literal thousand years of reign on earth with its various accompaniments, that this of all places is one where we are entitled to expect some reference to it. But there's none. There is no reference to such a thing in any of the epistles of the Apostle Paul or any of the other epistles. None at all. Our Lord himself never referred to it. It's not mentioned. You see, this is the result of taking one statement only in the scripture in a book which is full of symbols and pictures and literalizing it. It makes it something which is not to be found anywhere else at all in the whole of the teaching. And surely it has but one effect, and that is to create confusion in the minds of people. And why I'm referring to it mainly is this, that I feel it's not only creating confusion, it is standing between so many and the realization of this glorious teaching that we are examining. They're always talking about the millennium and never really talking about this. Whereas this is the thing to which the whole of the Bible, as we've already seen, is pointing forward. Very well then. There's nothing temporary about this. This is permanent. This is final. Very well, let me, in other words, put it in this form. What we've got described here as indeed I've already indicated several times before tonight, is what is called the eternal state. The eternal state and condition of the redeemed. And it will be ushered in by our Lord's second coming, the last judgment, the casting to final perdition of everything that belongs to sin and evil and the introduction of the new heavens and the new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. That's what it is, and it can't mean anything else. The whole creation is going to be delivered, absolutely, from the, not temporarily, but absolutely, from the bondage of corruption into the liberty of the glory of the children of God. Very well. Let me try to help a little bit further by putting it like this. I said this, I think, the first Friday night we began to consider this. This 
is not a reference, therefore, to what happens when we die. Isn't it? It is a reference to that which is to happen at the end of the world, at the end of time, in the final judgment at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we die, according to the teaching of the scripture, what happens to us is that we go to be with Christ. Now you remember this important teaching which Paul gives us in the epistle to the Philippians. In the first chapter, he says in verse 21, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I wot not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. Very well, then. What happens when the Christian believer dies is that he goes in spirit to be with Christ. That's perfectly clear. As I understand the teaching of Revelations 20, the unbeliever, of course, does not experience that. He has no part in that. He has no part in the first resurrection, which is, to me, a term that includes regeneration and the fact that the spirit of the believing person on death goes immediately to be with Christ. This is only true of the believer. But obviously it isn't the thing that we are dealing with here in Romans 8, 18 to 23. Because the great point about this is that the body is included. So don't think of this at all in terms of what happens to us when we die as believers. This is something reserved until that end. Because the body itself is then going to be delivered from all the corruption that still belongs to it. We are waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. In other words, what we have here in this passage demands and insists upon the full and the final and the complete redemption of men, body as well as soul and spirit. And also it demands the full redemption of creation also. It demands the final, ultimate defeat of Satan and all who belong to him, and the perfect salvation of men, and the restoration of the whole creation, not only to what it was before the fall, but to something yet more glorious. But again, I go on emphasizing, it's not temporary, it is final, it is full, it is permanent. Very well. Let's keep clear in our minds then that this is not uh, an exhortation to the Christian to hold on and to continue in spite of his suffering because when he dies he's going to be with Christ which is far better. That's perfectly true but that isn't what this is saying. That's what Paul says in Philippians 1. But here he goes well beyond that. Well now then somebody may ask very rightly well then what do you mean by heaven? What is the relationship, what, you, what, what we have here, uh, to heaven? This, uh, we have to admit, is a, a difficult subject. And yet it does seem to me more and more that we shouldn't be in difficulties. 
As I understand it, what is commonly described as heaven in the scriptures is what uh, we should call the intermediate state, not the final state, not the eternal state. It is the intermediate state. I, I mean by that something like this, that what is generally described as heaven in the scriptures is that very condition described there by Paul in Philippians 1, 23, where he talks about being with Christ, which is far better. Now, but that is the intermediate state. That is not the final state. That's not the eternal state, for this good reason. That in the eternal state, the final state, as, we, as I keep on reminding you, the body is going to be involved. But when he talks about being with Christ, which is far better, the body is not involved. The body may be in a grave. It may be in the depth of the sea somewhere. It may have been blown to atoms. He's not referring to the body. Now, that is the intermediate state. The state and the condition of the redeemed while they're waiting for the resurrection of the body and this final glorification of the body. Now, this becomes very interesting, as you notice. I am describing the intermediate state of what is commonly called heaven as the state of the soul and spirit of the believer apart from, out of, and without the body. Now, it is indeed most significant to notice, and yet it's the thing that is always not noticed, that in the famous passage in Revelations 20, the writer goes out of his way to tell us that he is only referring to the souls. Look at verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years." but the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. Now, you notice he says, the souls. And this isn't a wrong translation, it's a correct translation. He did say, the souls. You see, the bodies are not involved, they're not included. In other words, uh, Revelation 24 seems to me to give uh, a complete refutation to the theory of an earthly, literal thousand years. It's souls, not bodies. In other words, I would identify that with the condition of all believers who have died and who have gone to be with Christ, which is far better. That is exactly what happens to their souls. And they're there with him now. And they're reigning with him now. Christ is reigning now. Let's never forget that. He is seated at the right hand of God. He is reigning and waiting until his enemies be made his footstool. And all believers who have ever died since he came to complete the work of redemption, they're all with him. They're with Christ, and they are reigning with him now, the souls. But this, remember, is nothing but the intermediate state. It lasts a very long time. It's already lasted nearly 2,000 years. Hence, you're not surprised at the symbol of a thousand years. It doesn't mean a literal thousand, it means a long time. It's already more than a literal thousand, it's nearly two. And we don't know how long it is going to be. But the thing that I'm establishing and emphasizing is this. 
that that is the intermediate state. It's a state of the soul. It does not include the condition of the body. And so I would link up with all that. The expressions which we have in the scriptures, we had it uh, last Friday, I think it was, in dealing with 1 Corinthians 15, and you've got the same thing, of course, in the well-known passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, about them that that have slept. Let me just read the words to you. Verse 15 of the fourth chapter of 1 Thessalonians. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. Now there's the reference to Christians who've already died, and they are referred to, take verse 13, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. Now that term, uh, and then in 1 Corinthians 15, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Now there are some who said that that means a kind of sleep of the soul, and that believers, when they die, are in a state of unconsciousness and will remain like that until the resurrection. That seems to me to be impossible in the light of Philippians 1.23. Paul is not looking forward to a sleep, a sleep of the soul. He is looking forward to being with Christ, which is far better And that fits in with what we are told everywhere else. Well, why then are they referred to as being asleep? Well, it seems to me the answer is that it is a term which is used to describe an incomplete condition, to describe an intermediate state. At the glorification at the end, when the resurrection of the body takes place and man is fully saved in every respect, well, then he'll be living a full life as man. There is a sense in which that cannot happen until the glorification of the body. So this intermediate state is also described as being asleep. The body, as it were, is asleep. The body is not yet revivified and alive and active. So I take it that it refers mainly to the condition of the body. The body is, as it were, sleep, waiting. It's not active any longer. It's not active as it will be in the state of glorification. It's in this intermediate condition. It's asleep. So there we've accounted for the soul, which is with Christ, which is far better, and we've also accounted for the condition of the body. Now then, the point we're concerned about is that what we've got in Romans 8, 18 to 23 doesn't refer to that at all. This is the final state, the eternal state, not the intermediate, not the temporary state. Very well then. The great thing you and I have to lay hold of is this, that in our eternal and everlasting state, we shall not be disembodied spirits. I would very much like to know what each one of you has been thinking about all this, When you think of heaven, when you think of your eternal future, how do you think of yourself? I'm afraid most of us have always thought of it as being in a kind of disembodied spiritual condition. But that's quite wrong. That is only the intermediate state. In this final state, the everlasting state, we shall not be disembodied spirits. We shall be living in glorified bodies 
That's the whole point the apostle is establishing. The body is going to be redeemed. This is the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. And that, of course, means this, that there must be a glorified earth in which we are to live in our glorified bodies. Our eternal state is not going to be lived in the heavens, in the air, as it were, in some vague, nebulous spiritual condition. Not at all. The glorious thing that's taught here is this. We shall spend our eternity on the glorified earth under the new heavens, the new heavens and the new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. In other words, if you like, I'll put it like this. Heaven in an eternal sense is going to be heaven on earth. Heaven on earth. That's where we are going to spend our time. Not disembodied spirits, but the whole man redeemed, body included, glorified body. Well, a body must have something concrete to live on. And we're told he will have it. The whole creation is going to be delivered. All that we know now of the evil of creation is going to be done away with in the time when the heavens, uh, the elements will melt with fervent heat and the heavens will be on fire. That will be the dissolution of the present and the extrusion and the final ridding of all evil and sin. And there will be a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. And you and I will be in that. In the glorified body, in the, on the glorified earth, under the glorified heavens. That's all I know. I don't know, I can't give you details about the relationship between that glorified earth and the heavens. We don't know. But we are given a suggestion in Revelations 21 and 22. This new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven onto the earth. So what we can be absolutely certain of is this. That we must not think of our eternal state and future as just being in a kind of spirit condition. You know, spiritism has affected the teaching of the Christian church much more than you know. Most people in the Christian church today don't really believe in the resurrection of the body. All they believe in is that you go on living in another realm. That's not it. You will live in the body in this, on this renewed, renovated, regenerated earth. Now, why am I insisting upon this? Well, I have a very good reason for it. We've got to insist upon it. If this isn't true, well then, God has not really defeated Satan. You see, when God made man, he first of all made a world for him to live in. Man wasn't made as a spirit. Man, from the beginning, was made body, mind, and spirit. Very well. That's man as God made him. Body, mind, and spirit. Living in a physical universe. Now, my argument is that if God is to defeat Satan finally and completely and fully, he has got to restore everything to its original condition, even more marvelous than that. But the minimum is a restoration to its original condition. So if salvation just means that those of us who are believers are going to get rid of this old body at last and will dwell in a spiritual realm, in a spiritual, purely spiritual condition. I say redemption and salvation are not complete. God's plan of redemption is not complete until there is a, an earth for man to live in and on in the body. Paradise regained, as I said last Friday, but even more so. 
And thank God that's the very thing that the scripture teaches. That we don't look forward merely to a vague, indefinite, nebulous, spiritual state. No, no. We will be in the body. And we will be on this new earth under the new heavens wherein dwelleth righteousness. And that, and nothing short of that, will establish God's glory and his final triumph over the devil and all who belong to him. Very well. That is why, you see, in the last book of the Bible, you've got that figure of that new Jerusalem. It's a figure, it's a symbol again. I'm not going to press the details about the number of gates and about the gold and all the rest of it. That's all picture. It's all picture of a very glorious universe. It's just the use of symbols again. Don't materialize that. You've got to be very careful with that book of Revelation. It tells you that it's a book of symbols. Well, regard it as such. All it does is to say that there is to be this wonderful heaven upon earth. And you and I in the glorified body will dwell there. Very well. That brings me to my second and my last matter. In the light of that, what should be our outlook? How should we live in this world? What should be our state and condition now? Well, here seem to me to be the answers, the conclusions. The Apostles' teaching leads us to the first conclusion, namely that we should never be surprised at anything that happens to us in this world. Don't be surprised if you're persecuted because you're a Christian. Don't be surprised if you're laughed at. Don't be surprised if people think you're a fool. Don't be surprised if they show a bit of malignity toward you. That, according to the apostle, is what you must expect in this world. They did that to your Lord, and you are in him, and they'll do the same to you. You are suffering with him. Don't be a bit surprised, therefore, if things go terribly wrong in this world. Instead of getting better, it's what's to be expected. The whole creation is subject to vanity. Don't expect it to be any different. Now, this is most important, isn't it? So many people get into trouble in their spiritual lives and experiences because they say, you know, I thought that once I believed and became a Christian, I'd have no more troubles. That's not Christianity. That's the kind of teaching that the cults indulge in. That's not Christianity tells you that through many tribulations we shall enter into the kingdom, that you must expect this. In the world ye shall have tribulations. That's our Lord's own teaching, as it's the teaching of the apostles. Very well, there's the first conclusion. The second is, as a Christian, you must never pin your faith nor your hope to anything that man can do to improve conditions. There will be no improvement. There may appear to be improvements. Now and again, there'll be no radical improvement. This world is never going to be put right. It cannot be. At its center, there is this principle of disintegration, this vanity, this corruption. So a Christian cannot get excited about reform and things like that and feel that by acts of parliament you're going to bring in the new Jerusalem. I'm old enough to remember people preaching that. It was the great preaching in the church up until the First World War. They really thought that they were going to legislate in the new Jerusalem. What utter nonsense it is. Don't hope for anything 
in this world nor from it, then you won't be disappointed. But if you do hope much from it, you will certainly be disappointed. There is no hope held out for this world as it is and as it's organized. It is doomed. It's under the wrath of God. It is going to be destroyed. Let men do their utmost, and I'm not here to say they shouldn't. I'm not here to say you shouldn't have politics and you shouldn't have statesmen. Yet let them do all they can. Let us keep evil within bounds as much as we can. The powers that be are ordained of God to keep things within bounds. Let us be dutiful citizens. Let us take part if we like, but don't believe that you're ever going to put everything right. You're never going to. It can't be done. But we must believe in magistrates, and they've got to have the power of the sword to compel people. Otherwise you'll get chaos, even in the present, as well as the ultimate chaos that is coming. That's the second conclusion. Thirdly, we must always realize that our salvation in the here and now is always incomplete. In other words, as we've been seeing now so clearly since we were studying chapter 6, the position of the Christian as regards salvation in the here and now is this, that in the realm of his spirit he is already saved and is as saved as he ever will be. He is no longer in Adam, he is in Christ and he's safe there. More happy but not more secure the glorified spirits in heaven. Very well, as regards his spirit, he is already redeemed. Not only that, as the apostle tells us in verse 23, we have the first fruits of the spirit. In other words, as believers, the Holy Spirit is in us. And the spirit gives us a foretaste of the glory which is coming. His presence in us does that, as well as his work in us. You remember how in uh, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, the apostle puts it in the same way. In whom, having believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession. Very well, that's our position. I'm saved, I am a saved man, I am a child of God, I'm regenerate, I am a partaker of the divine nature, I am in Christ. I have died with him, I've risen with him, I'm seated with him in the heavenly places. That is absolute. But, my body is not sin. Sin remains in the body, this mortal body. That has not yet been delivered. That's what the apostle says he's looking forward to. The redemption of the body. The body is not yet redeemed. It is a body of sin. And sin takes its opportunity there. How many times have we seen that in chapter 6, 7, and 8? But here it was in chapter 8 in verse, in verse 10. If Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Now that is the position of the believer. He is saved and safe ultimately. But his body is not yet redeemed. We've already seen that in many instances. Now then, what is the result of this? Here's my next conclusion. The result is, says the Apostle, that at the present time, we groan within ourselves. 
He says the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. Now then, the Christian, he says, therefore, in this condition, being in a world like this, and still having an unredeemed body, is a man who is groaning within himself. Why does he groan? Now, here's an important point. He groans because he knows the condition of his body. And that causes him to groan. The body is a problem. And he knows that while he's in this life, it's going on to be like that. He's not promised anywhere that the body is going to be redeemed in this life. So he knows that. That's a part of the cause of his groaning. And it leads to a conflict, of course. The devil takes advantage. That's why the apostle exhorted us in chapter 6 and in verse 12. He said, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. You see, having said, reckon ye yourselves also to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto Christ. He then says, well, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. It will always be trying to, but don't let it. But it means a fight. It means a conflict. We've already considered that many times over. But all that leads to the fact that the Christian groans within himself. But you know, that's not the main reason for his groaning. I'll tell you what the main reason for the groaning is this. It is because he's got the first fruits of the Spirit in him. He says, we ourselves which have the first fruits of the Spirit, we ourselves groan within ourselves. Why? Well, for this reason. We see what we are now. We know what's coming. And it is to the extent that you know of what's coming that you'll be groaning as you are at the moment. Let me use a simple illustration. Do you remember what it is as a child to be looking forward to a holiday or something? And don't you remember groaning? Another six weeks to go? Now that was because you knew it was coming. If you didn't know it was coming, you wouldn't have said that. The more you know of this wonderful thing that's coming, the more impossible it is to wait until then. Why can't you have it now? Oh, but you've got to wait. And that's, you're groaning within yourself. Because you know the thing's coming. That's what the apostle is saying here. The unregenerate don't groan within themselves. And you know there are many Christians who don't groan within themselves. They ought to, but they don't because they don't know about this. They've never grasped this teaching. If they only saw this teaching, they'd at once begin to groan. You've got to wait for it still. You've got to go through with this, but you know that that is coming. And as you see this, you long for it, and you wait for it with keen anticipation. That's the reason for the groaning. Now, let me emphasize again something that I was emphasizing as we were doing the end of chapter 7. The groaning of Romans 8.23 has got nothing to do with the wretched men of Romans 7.24. I emphasized that at that time. I repeat it now. The trouble with the men in Romans 7.24 is he doesn't know that he's saved. He knows nothing about this glory which is coming. That's why he's a wretched man and cries out, Who shall deliver me? This man here is groaning because he knows about the deliverance and is simply waiting to get there, anxiously. Not only is the creation stretching out its neck, this man is much more so because he's got within him the first fruit of the Spirit. So there is nothing in common between the groaning 
of Romans 8.23 and the wretched, miserable men of Romans 7.24. It's an entirely different matter. This groaning is the result of certainty. That wretchedness was the result of uncertainty, which cries out, who shall deliver me? Very well then, here is the Christian and he's groaning. But then that in turn leads to the waiting. Waiting for the glory that is coming, which is going to include his body. Please forgive me, some of you, for saying this. This is the Christian, groaning as he is, but waiting for the adoption, not wasting his time about trying to determine the times and seasons, not trying to fix everything he reads of in the times in the morning with a prophetic clock. Dear me, no, what a tragedy, what a tragedy that so many Christian people are busying themselves making prophets, prophecies, saying it's going to happen at such and such a date and then it doesn't and they're bewildered and they're unhappy enough to start all over. My dear friends, why not believe this teaching? Wait for this glory, this adoption which is coming. These are the exhortations of the scripture. Waiting for the adoption or in Titus 2, looking for the appearing of that blessed God and Savior. Look at 2 Peter 3, where it is looking unto and hastening the coming of this great day. And then this, what manner of persons should we be in all holy conversation and godliness? That's the New Testament teaching. There should be no confusion about all this. And all these refinements, is there to be a preliminary rapture? How long is this to last? How do you fit this? There are people who are unhappy, they're in perplexity as the result of this prophetic teaching that began to be popular from about 1831 onwards. But you see, there's none of that in the scriptures. The scripture holds us before this big, central, glorious thing. Not some temporary condition, which is then going to end and the devil again have great sway, and everything go all wrong again in the world. No, no. It is this blessed appearing of the Son of God, and the manifestation of us, the sons of God, the children of God with him. The final redemption, body included, and the whole creation delivered from the bondage of corruption unto the liberty of the glory of the children of God. Well, I leave you with a test and with a question. Do you know anything about this groaning? That's a practical experimental question I'm asking. Can you say honestly, I myself groan within myself, waiting, for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of my body. Is that true of you? You see, my friends, it should be true of us. Don't waste your time in trying to fit communism into the biblical scheme, or Russia, and try and indulge in this cleverness of fitting in this and that, and that's not here. This teaching is given to comfort us, to strengthen us. To enable us to endure suffering. Not to confuse us. With all its detail and minutiae. And all the accommodations. It's the opposite of the scriptural teaching. Here is the teaching. 
Here is the blessed hope. It's taught everywhere in the Bible from the beginning to the end. God began teaching it in the Garden of Eden. You'll find it in Genesis 3.15 and it goes right on to the end. What's the final cry at the end of the book of Revelation? Isn't it this? Even so come Lord Jesus. How? Well, in the way that he's been talking about in those last chapters. The new heavens and the new earth. The new Jerusalem that's come down. Everything evil excluded forever and ever. Finally destroyed. And you and I and all who have believed on the Lord. Fully glorified. Entirely redeemed. And dwelling in the sunshine of his face. On that new earth. Under the new heavens. Wherein dwelleth righteousness. Very well. If you want to know how to overcome suffering and to be more than conqueror, it is to be so certain about this glory which is coming to you, including your body, that it makes you groan within yourself as you are at the moment, as you think of death. Very well. Let's be practical, therefore, and test our interpretation of the scripture by its practical effect upon our experience and upon our daily life in this present world. Well then, my dear and beloved friends, this is the conclusion. I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed. In us. Amen. O Lord our God, how can we thank thee and praise thee sufficiently for such a glorious, blessed hope. Open our eyes to see it, O Lord. Deliver us from every other consideration. Help us to keep our gaze steadfastly upon this, this which we know is going to happen. We thank thee, O God, that we know that thy very honor and glory are involved in this. Thou hast defeated Satan, thou wilt finally cast him to perdition. We thank thee that the very last enemy has already been conquered by thy dear son, our blessed Lord and Savior. O oh God, bring home this truth, we pray thee, to us one by one by thy Spirit in such a way that we shall know at one and the same time the groaning within ourselves and the joy unspeakable and full of glory as we contemplate what is yet to be true of us. O oh Lord, Grant that we all may see it until we shall be filled with this glorious sense of rejoicing and of anticipation. Look down upon us, we pray thee, in the meantime. Be with us, O Lord, until we meet together in this way again, if it be thy will. Keep our affections, we pray thee, set upon things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. 
O oh Lord, grant that we may more and more be made conformable to the image of thy dear Son, and grant that we may ever realize that our citizenship is in him, from whence also we expect the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change this, the body of our humiliation, and fashion it like unto the body of his own glorification, according to that mighty working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Now unto the King, immortal, invisible, eternal, be all praise and glory. Unto him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Unto the only wise God our Saviour be glory and majesty and dominion and power both now and ever. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us until the great day. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust Audio Library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.